0: Welcome, you're listening to The Sacristy, a podcast where we seek to learn, discuss, and exalt in the faith delivered once for all to the saints as it has been passed down in the Anglican tradition. I'm Father David Bumstead, the rector of Emmanuel Episcopal Church in the Audubon Park neighborhood of Orlando, Florida. And I'm joined by my peerless co-host,
1: Father Matthew Ainsley, the prospective vicar of All Souls Episcopal Church, a church plant in Horizon West Florida which will, Lord willing, begin
0: having services this fall. We are real priests with real jobs in real churches, and service times are in our bio. We'd love for you to join us for worship if you're ever in town with us.
1: Alright, today is a big day. It's a big day. Huge. Banner day. And you introduced me as peerless, peerless, which is not true. I have many peers. Well, if you're yeah. thinking in the negative, maybe I'm at the bottom all by myself. <laughs> but we are joined by someone today who I think is peerless, and it's a big day because it's our first ever guest on the Sacrifice. I've been promised. promising this yes. for it feels like decades. Weeks, uh, sure, decades. <laughs> yeah, and we are joined by noted author, speaker. Professor, theologian, near-professional athlete, <laughs> former frontman for a screamo band, host What's of Shark week? week. What else? Lion husbandry specialist. Who's with us?
0: This is Canon Justin Holcomb. Thanks, Welcome. Friends.
2: That was uh, that was a peerless introduction. Oh. That was spectacular. Now, some of that stuff wasn't true, but what we'll people. Hear about <laughs> What, what part was it true? I, I, I was the lead singer for a death metal band. That part was true. So, Well, actually,
0: we said it wrong, because technically we said Screamo band. It, yeah. Well, I mean, it, we're
2: getting the Screamo, distinction Death is Metal. I, I know. We can get into the nuances of, like, is it, was it death core? Was it core? Was it Death Metal? Was it Screamo? There was a lot of shrieking.
0: Okay, well, was it? which one was it?
2: I would call it more of a hardcore Grindcore that's good. With hints of death metal. There was lots of growling, but I'd have to let you listen to it.
1: I've heard it. It's amazing. It I've is heard amazing. it as well. Yeah.
2: We should probably make a clip available. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if we can. <laughs> for fun, when I drive my yeah. girls to school, I play music for them. And every once in a while, they'll say, play your old band. And then we'll sit there and just like, as eight and ten year old girls, just like try to growl, which is really cute. Oh, that's awesome. Watching girls try to do death metal.
0: Cannon Holcomb has already anticipated how we're going to warm up today, which is, as Father Matt has t- uh, described it, our other life as rock stars. And uh, so f- tell us a little bit more about your other life as a rock star. And I'll tell you a little bit more about mine. And Father Matt has a, a story for on his own as well. So, Well, yes. when I was 19, uh, 18 and 19,
2: I had a bunch of friends who, uh, I, two of them actually converted. Uh, I would go... Downtown and hand out tracks and do evangelism and these two guys converted and one played bass and one played guitar and so we started a band and It was the first band was called ninth hour because Jesus Mm. died at the ninth hour and then we changed it to man soul I had no musical ability And I surrounded myself by people that did and I was a really good front man because I had hair down to my waist I mean, I had the look, I had my combat boots, my trench coat, I had piercings all over my body. Um, So
0: for those folks who don't know what it means to be a frontman for, you know, basically a grindcore band with death metal influences, you know, they might know what a frontman is for a band. They might be thinking of, like, I don't know, what, uh, the guy from Maroon 5 or uh, something like that. But there's a difference between that and what you did. What would be the most significant difference between... Aerosmith and you. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> Aerosmith and usual frontmen are kind of just pretty. Yeah. Um, there's lots of stomping, lots of scowling, diving, stage diving, mm-hmm. like diving into the crowd, and you're trying to ramp up. I mean, it has a
0: rhythmic tell feel to your, it. Tell me about your vocal affect there, Justin. Well,
2: the, well, something I was really proud of is in that scene, being able to do the helicopter swoops with your hair, yes. was really cool. So you really like cool. literally just think of a helicopter like, just turn sideways, so your hair is going in big circles. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we all of us knew how to do that at the same time, so that just looked really that's dope. cool for that scene. Um, and then I basically just growled and shrieked <laughs> as loud as possible. So it's kind of like Cookie Monster on steroids. Yeah. So.
0: It's Cookie Monster pterodactyl time, is what we used to
2: say. <laughs> I, that's, I didn't know, that's perfect description, actually. Yeah. Which is actually, I mean... I mean, now that I chant every once in a while, uh, when I when I celebrate, it's it's hilarious because <laughs> you have to be, you know, you're you're actually being really thoughtful about notes, and mm-hmm. and in that setting, there was less thoughtfulness about hitting notes.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I myself was in an indie rock band or two uh, before uh, being ordained to the priesthood. One of my favorite stories has to do with uh, being with my old band. We were called Look Mexico. We were uh, finishing up a tour. I actually stole, told this uh, story to a couple of friends at a party recently but um, we had made enough, we had made money on a short tour which wow. never happens yeah, as We you didn't know, make yet. money. Congratulations. We, thank you. Yeah, definitely uh, uh, definitely not something that happens very much. So we um, we were leaving the Gainesville area uh, heading on to 10 and getting some gas and Uh, The drummer says, we ought to spend all of our money on scratch-off tickets. All of our profit. (laughs) And everybody says, yeah, that's a great idea. And I said, that's that's a great idea. Yeah, (laughs) let's do it. Very (laughs) imprudent. Uh, I was a brand new Christian. Hadn't learned about the virtues yet. And anyway, so we we drove into uh, the place. We spent half an hour scratching off uh, some you know, number of scratch-off tickets. And it came back to me later that this was actually a sign of God's providence that we, when we were done scratching off all these tickets, maybe $300, say, worth of scratch-off tickets, we had recouped our loss to the tune of $299. So we spent uh, $1. <laughs> so God was taking care of us, uh, I guess. <laughs> like, um, well, we played it we played in an indie rock band that if people are in the audience listening, uh, who did we rip off? We ripped off people like Braid and Minus the Bear. So if you know those bands, you get 17 gold stars. Good for you. What about you, Father Matt? I was actually in a band in high school called
1: Nasal, believe it or not. <laughs> and we were a horrific... Essentially, we were just a Blink-182 cover band. <laughs> and what we would do is we would... We had to change the lyrics to make a youth group acceptable. So we were one of those. If you remember the 90s, it was kind of a thing to take secular songs and give them like cheesy Christian lyrics. So I did that, but my passion was not with rock. I was in college, but I really wanted to be in, in sync. I'm like, <laughs> why am I doing this? I want to be in a boy band. Wow. And so I tried out, because again, consistent, consistent with where like Christian culture was, at the time, there's a Christian version of everything. And so they were forming, out of liberty, this Christian boy band. And I had to try out for it. I had to get, like, photos and headshots. The problem was, is that I wasn't really taking care of myself at the time. I think my normal lunch was a plate of corn dogs and then a plate of fries. So I wasn't really in boy band shape. Wow. So I really didn't make it past the initial interview and my dreams were shattered. But I had the pipes. I think I had the moves. I just wasn't. So hold on. I got a couple questions about that. (laughs) Now, (laughs) wait a minute. (laughs) So did you have to get headshots made to audition? I think I just printed them out. (laughs) (laughs) And my hair at the time, I had it like bleach blonde. It it, it was as white as (laughs) printer paper. And I did it myself. Like I just bought the cheapest stuff. And I didn't even protect my scalp or put a shower cap on. I just put just this bleach directly your head on my in a head. a bucket of bleach. And, it, and it, I'm starting to lose hair up on the top of my head. And I think it's because I just abused my
0: scalp in college. And I mean, that really the is. Hair's that, just that, that the hair's is dead.
3: The follicles are dead. <laughs> yeah.
0: That was like the NSYNC look back then, right? Because JT at that point had that, those frosted tips, right? We had like a little it early was. thing. Oh yeah, first, yeah, right, he, right. He, he was. I there think was I, bleach involved. Yeah, like
1: I think I had, and I can't believe my roommate even let me do this. We're good friends to this day. I think I had six six NSYNC posters in my dorm room, and it was not a big room.
2: Wow, <laughs> it's amazing that we're actually friends because
0: I can't each, believe that each yeah. one of us from our bands would have made fun of the other yeah. uh, people. <laughs> Yeah, the death, the death metal singer would have definitely made fun of the math rock player, and both of us would have been yeah. pretty, um, well... Well, I hope you guys are having fun, because we're cutting this all in post. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right, well, we're going to move on to the calendar, so we're going to begin with the collect of the day for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. The Lord be with you. And with, with thy spirit, spirit. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, not to mind earthly things, but to love things heavenly, and even now while we are placed among things that are passing away, to cleave to those that shall abide. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Father David, what's coming up on the church calendar?
0: Well, we're going to go through September the 21st. On September 19th. The church remembers Theodore of Tarsus, who was a 7th century Archbishop of Canterbury. He was called by Venerable Bede, the great church historian, as the first archbishop whom all the English obeyed. Uh, he was known as a faithful and effective archbishop who improved the working order of the English church. On September 20th, the church remembers John Coleridge Pattison, who was a missionary bishop to Melanesia and stood against the slave trade there, and was martyred most gruesomely by an axe wound by people who were upset with his position on the matter.
2: Tis but a flesh wound.
0: Yeah. <laughs> finally, <laughs> finally, on September 21st, uh, the church has a major feast, St. Matthew the Apostle. St. Matthew, of course, being apostle and evangelist, he probably wrote a gospel or something.
2: Uh, this was... I love this one because the Matthew has this really cool connection to our Eucharistic prayers so each one of our six Eucharistic prayers in the 79 prayer book at the words of institution regarding the cup says drink this all of you hmm something that we say all the time that's actually particularly Matthew that's Matthew's account of the words of institution from Christ the other ones Mark, Luke, and Paul do not include drink this all of you. And so what's really cool is that the Eucharistic prayer takes Matthew's account. Well, Matthew's account has Judas and a bunch of betrayers and Peter right before and right after. So it has this built into our Eucharistic prayer is this wonderful little hint from Matthew's intent of the welcome to the table. I mean, for those who are baptized, but it has this like The the net is cast wide to those that have failed. Drink this, all of you. Come on here. And so I just love the tone of that. And to have it, you know, I I get to preach and celebrate for Daughters of the King Ah. on that Saturday. And I just love, this is one of my favorite ones because of that cool thing. Because it's a great message, but seeing how liturgically how that's been woven in and how intentional that is. So take that for what it's worth. And that's why he's our guest. Yes. (laughs) And
1: again, we are so glad to have you here, the Reverend Dr. Canon Justin S. Holcomb. And really, I know we joked about Shark Week and husbandry or something like that. <laughs> well, but Lion he, Husbandry. Lion right? Husbandry. But he is actually a scholar, theologian, author. We're not joking about that. And he did a few years ago this Know Them series, one of which the books was Know the Creeds and Councils. And so we're going to be talking today about the Councils of the church so can you just start us off what is a council when we talk about the councils what
2: on earth are we discussing i will but first i want to say thank you for letting me. i didn't know i was the first guest so oh, yeah I, I knew what you guys were doing i didn't know i was the first that just makes me feel special Well, good. second i love you guys so i love what we love doing, you too man but i love you guys so just the fun of doing this And it's just a joy and an honor that you would give uh, podcast time to let me join in on the fun.
0: Well, we thought that the creeds and the councils were so foundational to what not only what we believe as Christians, but foundational to what we would be talking about in our career as podcasters, as long as we do the sacristy, that it felt like, well, who do we know that has written about it and has talked about it and who is in our lives that we love that we want to hear from? So it made sense to have you here up front. Well, so honored and, to be here. Yeah, thanks. Now I'm not telling you this just to sell books, but I
2: wrote two books at the same time, Know the Creeds and Councils and Know the Heretics because they actually go together. Mm-hmm. Same same uh, story, just different sides of that story. The, the councils were the church bringing together the leaders, bishops, clergy, to hammer out issues usually brought up by heretical teachings. So you can tell the heresy story, you can tell the council story. And the the reason was because these heretical teachings were too difficult for individual pastors to figure out on themselves. They usually were theological and practical. So Mm -hmm. one example is the Council of Nicaea. We'll go over the seven ecumenical, but just as an example, Nicaea, everyone thinks Nicaea was about, is Jesus fully divine or fully human or both? What is that? Well, theologically it's about Jesus being fully divine. But there's actually a practical ramification of worship, like how do we worship God and worship Jesus? And so it's both theological and practical. So that's the first thing about councils. These are not uh, dry, boring head trips of the insider guys.
0: Right, there's always a pastoral dimension to the working out of theology in this big setting. So one of the things that I think is important to us and to uh, so many in the church is to help people realize that theology and worship that the doxological ramifications of the things that we believe there's no real separation in the historical church that's and, and if there is a separation it's a much more recent development
1: it's really conciliar theology is in part articulation of the church's worship yeah lex around lex credendi, the law of prayers the law of belief because they were worshiping God worshiping Jesus as divine as God from the beginning, Thomas, my Lord and my God. Um. And so as they reflected on the worshiping life of the church, the councils in part, correct me if I'm wrong, are how do we put Jesus and God in the same sentence? And, and what do we mean that we're worshiping? Are we polytheists now? What are we, what are we saying?
2: It's exactly it. It was giving an articulation to what they were doing. That's exactly what. So I'm not going to correct anything. That's, so that's it wasn't.
1: It, it wasn't just a la Dan Brown, Constantine deciding <laughs> in 325
2: that Jesus is God. That narrative's not true. Oh, okay. It's, it's no a good book though. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to read read an afternoon. But no, it's not good. It's not good history. Father theology. Matt, how are you going to deal with the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to enjoy it on the beach. <laughs> I'm going to watch Tom Hanks in the I, movie. I don't know. I've actually had people back in the I, day. I'm being serious. Going well. So they wrote the Bible in 325 to make sense (laughs) of Jesus and said, wow, no. um, Not at all. There's a lot of this basic history you have to get to. Um, Well, here's the thing, is that the first recorded council is actually found in the New Testament. So this isn't a category of having a council that the early church wasn't punted until the 300s. The very first one is found in Acts, the Jerusalem council. And it was given because Paul and Barnabas were dealing with believers in Antioch and Jerusalem. There's a large growth in the number of Gentile converts in the early church. So they had to figure out practically, wait a second, uh, we were all Jews and are Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now we have all of these Gentiles joining in. What do we do? That's a practical issue that has theological ramifications, Acts 15. And so they're trying to figure that out because they're all together on a daily basis, so what does that mean? And so, like the Jerusalem Council, all the other ones have that similar practical and theological put back together, which you both just discussed really helpfully. And so the question is, are they authoritative? In what way are they authoritative? And absolutely they're authoritative, and we can talk about the categories. Do the councils have magisterial authority, meaning are they an ultimate authority? Or do they have another category called ministerial authority? The three of us would want to say that these councils as tradition are authoritative. Are they sovereign over Scripture or equal to Scripture? Scripture is the magisterial, final authority on faith and practice. But these councils have ministerial authority. They're they are they're right there. And so J.I. Packer has a great quote. Tradition is the fruit of the Spirit's teaching activity from the ages as God's people have sought understanding of Scripture. It is not infallible, but neither is it negligible, and we impoverish ourselves if we disregard it. Or Dun Scotus, who says that Scripture is sovereign over tradition, but tradition should not be ignored. And because no one else on this podcast will ever quote Calvin, <laughs> let me let me bring that to the table because this is surprising. Most, <laughs> well, or J. I. Packer, but, <laughs> but this is—we we might quote him, but. <laughs> but, but but this is the reason we're bringing this up is because most people who go they think there's two gears: is tradition is sovereign over Scripture, or we need to get rid of tradition no. altogether. And so, what we celebrate is we actually. Uh, while the specific words from Calvin are shocking, but we have a really high view of what the church has done because her leaders spoke authoritatively. And so this is what Calvin says, We willingly embrace and reverence as holy the early councils, such as those of Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus 1, Chalcedon, and the like, which were concerned with refuting error insofar as they relate to things of faith. Mm. We reverence and consider holy. That's not what most people would think of. Right. Because th- that's not a category. Because we have this, and Louis Burkhoff, another person who won't be quoted, said <laughs> fundamentalists and progressives actually agree on their slogan, no creed but the Bible. And what we're celebrating here is well, it's not just me and my Bible, it's me and my Bible and uh, you and your Bible, and those people from thousands of years ago who spoke authoritatively right. in their Bible. And so that's the fun thing about these councils is they're really important. And to ignore them is to try to reinvent the wheel again and then reinvent yeah. it really badly. Yeah, it's the Bible and the church. Yes. you know, And also that's actually impossible
1: to do. I don't care what your IQ is or how spiritual you are. You cannot, as an individual, construct the Christian faith from the ground
0: up. All buy your lonesome, Joseph Butler kind of did, but that's okay. I'm just kidding. Gonna... There's something we received, <laughs> yes, right? Of what we say,
1: the faith delivered once for all to the saints, the deposit of faith that's been passed down to us through these councils. Yes, and we need to pay attention to them, to well, say the least. Right
2: in in the language, uh, Second Timothy 1, 13 through fourteen. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the holy spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you so what paul says there is it's not only sound words but the pattern of sound words and paul and other apostles were they were passing on there's a traditioning here the passing on yeah. And there's summaries of creeds. And so we actually have in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Corinthians 11, we have these formulaic sayings that he was giving apostolic authority to. So he was taking the worship from the church, going back to your original point, Matthew, uh, worship from the church, and then blessing it with his apostolic authority and saying, yeah, that's the pattern of sound words. So we actually have a picture of this of Mm -hmm. councils and creeds Oh, yeah.
1: text. For I delivered unto you that which I also received. Yes. Right? That exactly. Christ died for his right. sins according exactly. to the scriptures and exactly. so on exactly. and so forth. And then to the church at Thessalonica, keep to the traditions, both the ones I spoke to you and the ones I wrote to you. So here it yes. is. Here's the, the faith. It's, we're not just kind of
2: freewheeling. How about we go over some of the councils? And That'd just, be great. Yeah, in rapid
1: succession. Would be Let's great. do that.
2: So um, there are seven, we're called ecumenical councils, which means general universal councils. Now, between uh, Roman Catholic Orthodox uh, Protestants there's varying levels of agreement on which ones we count and some Orthodox say one or two or three and and then Roman Catholics have an extra 14 because that's what they would do but the seven we need to go over are <laughs> you guys okay Is that
0: no, no we're good <laughs> <laughs> Did you wince a little bit no we're not Anglo- We're not Anglo <laughs> I was actually having a conversation with a colleague last night about like well, which ones are which ones are we? checking off there and i'm like you know that's a good question what do you think and that's kind of how those conversations always go i'm still having an
2: anglo-papalist you ever heard <laughs> that before no oh yeah that's great i'm i there's I'm,
1: anglo-catholics that just wish <laughs> they're just waiting so they yeah. can become roman catholic yeah. it's just a matter I just of time heard
2: the phrase i'm glad that you oh yeah guys no, no, that's a whole. that's a be. whole thing wow
1: okay yeah. Well, there you go. Another time, listeners. There's a whole Reddit thing for it. I'm so, just there's, kidding. <laughs> I don't go on Reddit. No, there actually is a subreddit. I'm sure there <laughs> is. <laughs>
2: so we'll go with seven.
1: Seven's a perfect number. Let's roll with Let's that. Let's roll with that. So
2: there's seven of them. There is Nicaea1 in 325. And they were trying to figure out this issue of Arianism, where Jesus was the heresy of Arius, which is that Jesus is not fully God. Jesus is the first thing that the Father created, and then Jesus created everything else. High view of Jesus, just not fully divine.
0: Because of a misunderstanding
2: of what eternal means for Christ. Yes, yes. And they're trying to figure out the nature of Christ. Other issues are ordination of eunuchs. Prohibition about kneeling on Sunday and from Easter to Pentecost and some other issues. So that's Nicaea 1 and 325. Then there's Constantinople 1 and 381. So actually our Nicene Creed is Mm -hmm. the Nicene-Constantinople Creed because Constantinople added to the Nicene Creed that was originally there. They were dealing with Arianism. Apollinarianism, which was another issue about Jesus and his divinity and humanity. Modalism, which was the... uh, Uh, basically that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were just masks that this one God would wear, not distinct persons. And and we finally have dealing with the Holy Spirit. Is the Holy Spirit an it or a he, third person of the Trinity? How do we talk about that? So Nicaea 1, 325, Constantinople 1, and
0: 381. Uh, And actually, one of the things that some uh, listeners might be interested in, if if you're curious about that period between 325 and 381, That's that book that we were talking about last time we met called uh, Nicaea and its Legacy, which takes care of the theological uh, importance uh, and, and, and discussions between Nicaea and Constantinople. It's a fascinating book just to refer back. Who wrote that? Uh, Lewis Ayers. Lewis Ayers. Yeah. That guy's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this is why it's nice to have a scholar around. They all know each other. <laughs> <laughs> he
2: he was at Emory when I was doing my PhD. What? And he just went there and he gave me my idea for my very first book called Christian Theologies of Scripture. And he wrote a chapter in it. But it was his, it was talking to him. And he said, I think this is a great idea. You should do a whole series like this. So Lewis Ayers is, he's brilliant, but also just a very gracious, um, Person also—that's what he's known for. That's awesome. So, Ephesus is the third one in 431, and they were dealing with Theotokos, is is Mary the God bearer. Uh, Pelagianism, which basically is a salvation heresy, which says you got everything you need; just be better, and Mm -hmm. God will reward you with salvation. And Nestorianism, a heresy about is is Jesus. How did you know? We just found out Jesus is fully God and fully divine. But is he really two people? How, how do the natures of Christ and the natures uh, the nature of humanity deal with each other? And so they, Nestorians were separating the human and divine natures too far. So Ephesus was trying to step into that. And that was my
1: favorite chapter in your book. I loved what you did. Just a, you did a great job explaining all the political struggles and kind of how Cyril picked Ephesus and, and sort of gave himself... If you will, unfair home court advantage because (laughs) Cyril's the orthodox response. So, just so listeners, they probably know that, but just be safe. Go ahead. Because it was this bastion of Marian devotion. So, for in order to safeguard the mystery of the incarnation and the unity of the two natures of Christ, to call Mary the Theotokos, well, let's do it in Ephesus, right? It's kind of like, you know, doing a Hall of Fame induction of Michael Jordan in Chicago. Like, it's it's going to be good. <laughs> Tennis
2: yeah. will be pretty decent. Yeah, there you <laughs> go. It's a crowd. Not a lot of haters. Not a lot of LeBron people arguing that he should be his evil yeah. Well, I,
0: I'm always curious about, about that one, too, because I, um, I I would say that the Nestorian heresy is one that always causes confusion for me personally whenever I think back on it. Would you mind just taking, like, a couple minutes just to describe what's at stake there? Can I do that when I do it with Eutyches? Yeah. and Because I put them together. And okay. Or the sure. monophysite.
2: So what... Because uh, that that this one stays with us is that cool? If I just punt of it for course. a second, the fourth ecumenical is the Council of Chalcedon in four fifty one, where they looked at some previous disagreements between the human and divine natures of Christ. So Cal- the Chalcedonian Creed is where we start getting clarity on the person and nature of Jesus, and then Constantinople two is where, which is five fifty three. Is where you have Nestorians and Monophysites, and this is your question. So right. Nestorians, so uh, Nicae tell, Nicaea tells us that Jesus is co-eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is fully divine and co-eternal. That he has a, he's fully human and fully divine. Now the question then is, well, how do the human nature and divine nature relate to each other? And so Nestorians would separate the. Human nature and divine nature so much that it was as if Jesus was really two persons. Okay. Now, Eutyches and the Monophysites—mono one site so it was that they would so unite the two of the the human nature and divine nature so much that they were basically blended, and so it was really there was no distinction. So, what what you have in the Chalcedonian Creed and the Council of Chalcedon said Jesus is two natures in one person. But those natures are not divided or separated, which is talking to the historians, or blended or mixed, like it's a hybrid, which is going against the monophysite. So the council basically said, here are the bounds of orthodoxy. Don't go beyond it, but there's a little bit of mystery in the middle sure. of that because we have Acts where it says, "Jesus, we, we were saved by the blood of God. Right. Like, well, what do you do with that? Right. Or Theotokos, like... The, the Chalcedon actually reinstated and said, Theotokos is what we're going to say, the God-bearer. Well, how Thank do you, you. say yeah. that? Yeah, so, right.
0: Well, and so, like, sorry to go a little bit further in the weeds, but is that separation being too far or united too closely? Was that the one where it's a disagreement over whether it's uh, located at the will
2: that's monophysitism, which is okay. how, well. It's part of that, but how many? This goes right into. and We'll come back to it. But Constantinople three in, in six eighty one is how many wills does Jesus have? Does he have a human will and a divine will, or is it just one will? And Orthodoxy said two wills. He doesn't have a blended will. He has right. a divine will. The per, the second person of the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ incarnate, has a divine will and a human will. So it, it is related to that. What's cool about this conversation? about these issues is that this actually informs your understanding of Eucharist. And this is where a lot of debates actually take place. Sure. If you are, if you lean more toward Eutyches and Monophysite, or if if you just emphasize the fact that the union, which is a good thing to do, the union, the hypostatic union, if you have a human body that is so closely connected to the divine nature, yeah.
0: What does hypostatic union refer to?
2: It's referring to the union of the two natures, the divine nature and the human nature, and so it's the two natures in one person, um, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah sorry about that. No. So Lutherans uh, were made fun of by Calvinists because they were saying, "Hey, you Lutherans, you're two, you're 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 uh, monophysites, you're Eutychians." Well, a Lutheran understanding of sacrament is that. The human nature of Jesus is so closely bound to the divine nature of Jesus that therefore he humanly can be ubiquitous everywhere because in his divine nature, he's everywhere. And so when Jesus is spiritually there, he's also physically there because you can't separate the two. Hmm. And then the Lutherans would look at the Calvinists and say, you're historians because you think he's spiritually there but not physically there because he's physically at the right hand of the Father ascended but because you separate the two so far. So your understanding of sacraments, should get into essence and accidents and Aristotle and Aquinas, but it's also informed by the Nestorian Monophysite discussion of Chalcedon. So um, that's that's just a fun thing to be thinking about is how does your Christology actually inform your understanding of sacrament?
0: Yeah, so uh, once again, kind of coming back to that idea that the high-level theology of the church, born out in council with all these bishops coming together to hash it out, not just being left in the council chamber, but with direct effects, if you will, on the worship of the church at the summit of its worship being, you know, the Holy Eucharist, the mass. It, it matters. Yeah, these are not the musings of the
1: academy and some ivory tower. This is ground level Stuff that affects well, it, the whole church. It
2: brought it brought people from the entire church. It wasn't just the best, <laughs> the brightest, the flashiest preachers, the most fervent activists. There was a the people who were there was a wide spectrum of diversity of these leaders. So it brought together, and to ensure, even though there might be some home court advantages. I mean, to the point, going back to what the joy of Ephesus <laughs> of why you liked it is when you actually have. Uh, riots in the streets and slogans like they would like there were slogan songs that they were chanting against each other. And so there were riots in the streets because of these heresies because it actually mattered to the civility and the continuation of the cities. And didn't Nestorius
1: have a fun nickname? Was it Torchy? Was that Nestorius? I, I think that's what it was.
2: I, I'm, I can't remember exactly, but yeah. Because
1: I, I think in your book you were saying that he had, in these theological debates he had burned down an Arian church and it ended up oh spreading gosh. and burning down uh, more than he wanted to. And so he was nicknamed Torchy. And a lot of people hated him. Uh, the emperor's sister, I believe, being no exception. And that, that was another
0: reason that yeah. Uh, the council was moved to Ephesus. Well, here's a here's a real quick stack question it against Torchy. <laughs> <laughs> here's a real quick question, and maybe we've covered it, but it's worth reiterating. I think. Well, who, when we say the council, and we say the ecumenical or of the house, right? Who is there? Like, who's present at a council? Bishops are yeah. going to be there. Bishops' assistants, so like Athanasius,
2: who. Cyril, people theologians who some who were not bishops yet Mm -hmm. and so you have theologians you have clergy you have bishops showing up from all around the world so and the goal is to have all the different viewpoints properly presented so they can actually make a decision and the goal was to reach an orthodox consensus to establish and restore peace and to develop a unified faith and Jesus prayed for the unity of the church, right. And they took this stuff seriously. Right. This wasn't ivory tower. We got nothing else to think about. So let's go pontificate about how many wills does Jesus have? Well, it's because salvation depended on it. Like if who Jesus is as fully human and fully divine isn't articulated properly, they were worried that the gospel, the proclamation of redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ falls apart. Like, our message doesn't work if he's not fully human and fully divine. So this was not a nerd fest.
1: Yeah, and you talk about that in your chapter on the councils of Constantinople, where even by that time, they're still going back to Origen. Origen's saying, you know, whatever was not taken up is not saved. So if Christ didn't take up a human will, then our our will is not saved, right? Yep. Yep. And so that's what's... it's exactly what you're saying. Of yes, who is this crucified and risen
2: one? Yes. It's and important for our salvation, for the salvation of the world. If he's not full, so he's full. <laughs> he needs to be fully divine because, we, well, we need, we need someone in our place who is a human who stands in our place as a substitute. But we also need our Savior to be powerful enough, like God, to actually conquer our enemy of Satan sin held out in the grave, <laughs> and and so if he's not fully human. Then how can he be our sacrifice right. if if he doesn't? How can he Hebrews relate to says, us? How, he doesn't relate, and which is the whole point of Hebrews. Like he right. gets it; he was tempted in every way, and he has empathy for our situation. And so he needed to be fully like us, but without sin. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that that's the whole message. That's the whole point. And if we lose that, then we're, we become we pitch life transformation, or we pitch pithy sentimental sayings, but we're we're preaching something else than those.
0: I think in the background, too, is, is um, I think all three of us are reacting to a narrative that I'm going to go ahead and make explicit because we haven't made it yet, is that sense where um, there is that, whether it's a homiletical trick or just a, a way that the, the church history is described, even in the academy, but certainly sometimes in, in church life, is how much work could have been done for the gospel if we weren't so worried about the, you know, the specificity of our doctrine. Right. That, 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 that as if it's like a waste of time. Uh, With the shorthand that doctrine divides and Jesus unites. Right. Like, yeah. go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that, and exactly right. Put You just said in two phrases what I'm trying to say in ten. But um, Well, that's the slogan that gets thrown at me when right. you a book about church but, history.
1: But upon inspection, I mean, that, that sounds good until you think about it for three seconds. I that's, mean, right. that's That's nonsense because we have to talk about... Who is this Jesus around whom you want us to unite? Well, we it's... have to have that conversation. We can't just be like, "Well, let's just unite around Jesus." Well, well who the... are we talking well, about? The irony. Is the that... crucified and risen one, or someone who just <laughs> yeah. wants us to recycle and be good people?
0: I like to recycle.
1: Recycling's good, but it's that's not the gospel.
0: Oh.
2: The irony about that sentence is doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. Doctrine divides, but Jesus. And all of the councils were exactly about specific things about Jesus. Right. (laughs) So It's like it just falls apart as self-referentially absurd. We've we've talked about
0: we've talked about the liturgical dimension of the councils. I mean, so beautifully said by you about you know how do we meet these councils in the context of the mass, but we also meet these things as as priests um, in in the the pastoral sense where we're trying to draw people into union with Christ in our pastoral care where so many times I'm having questions born out of pastoral pain or whatever about well who's Jesus anyway and if me as a priest doesn't if I don't have the the doctrine of the church at my back ready to back up everything I'm going to say I'm giving them something that is going to be less than that which will help them, right? I want to give them the fullness of the gospel in pastoral care and in preaching, sure, but in pastoral care especially. I want to give them everything that God has for them in Christ. Amen. And instead of, you know, a guru, somebody who's going to help them.
1: Well, you nailed it. Salvation is union with god like why do we exist as human beings and it's through the incarnation christ becoming human he takes us to himself and by being taken into himself we're taken into the godhead we become partakers of the divine nature and that's why we exist And so if he's not fully god and fully human that doesn't happen right it all falls apart and he can't conquer
2: the barriers to union with him, which are sin and death and, and then the devil. You, then you have a different version of Jesus than what he said about himself. He, yeah. He's not just a prophet who's pitching some neat ideas. He's not just a social activist. He's not just—he's he's the savior. He's, he's the lamb on the throne, Revelation 5. He is the sacrifice, and he is the king. And he is God with us, Emmanuel, and God for us, which is the phrase from the rest of the New Testament. Christ died for your sins. So, if you don't have, so this, what ends up happening, and I love what you guys are saying about doxology and worship, because so many people, going back to that narrative, think that studying the councils and history and doctrine is looking under the hood of the car and looking at the nerding out on the engine. Well, you want to make sure the engine works, Mm -hmm. but you got to get in the car and drive that thing and feel centrifugal force push you against the side of the car and feel your head snap back. And that's what you're describing. When someone's suffering, or if they're tempted in sin and they're feeling shame, it's really powerful to say, Jesus understands your sin, And, and Jesus subjected himself to suffering. He's not the distant God who's looking back going, I wish I had a fix. But his response (laughs) to the problem of evil is to go, I'll let this play out on me, and I'll absorb the effects of your sin and your evil in the whole world so I can fix it. That's right. That's an
0: active, saving, rescuing, redeeming God. That's why the gospel preaches, because of how many of us walk through life with that, even those of us in the church, even myself at sometimes, we think of God as being this distant, inefficient problem solver, who's not really all that good at solving problems, But it's garbage, because we know that Jesus is the one who has solved the problems, and it is incumbent on his preachers to let the world know how many problems have been solved, i.e. the problem of sin, death, the devil, the universe, which needs to come back into good order under God's kingship. Amen and amen. All right, bring it home. What's the last council?
2: Council of Nicaea Two seven eighty seven about icons and holy images. It just feels like after that, that was like the cherry on top of goodness. It's like, and so they debated about icons. So but no, <laughs> no,
0: no, no, totally <laughs> wrong. No, I, I disagree with you, respectfully, brother. Um, because what are it's icons? Still about the incarnation. What are icons? So. Icons are windows into the into the universe as it should be, which is the kingdom of God and his heaven.
1: And they're also heralds of our eschatological destiny because. There's this image that brings God's wise future forwards, right? And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then whatever icon we're beholding, we are beholding and reflecting on what we will become in full in Christ at the last day. So what's that stake in the (laughs) council?
2: Are you allowed to enjoy them or should they all be burned and thrown away? I (laughs) don't know. And so they said, get to it. It's okay. You're fine. Icons are good. Holy images are good. They're useful. For uh, this, for spirituality and for theology, so it which, was, it was which, just giving
0: permission, right? Which means that there are aids to the church's proclamation. To you know, if there's a cherry on top, it's to say that the church says at the at the end of that council that if 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 salvation includes and consists of the universe being truly drawn back into union with its creator through Christ then icons are yet one more way for the church to exert that proclamation yeah. to the world that needs to hear it. Yeah, and we're going to get to the sermon first
1: pass in just a second. But I do think that for today in the 21st century with icons, it is an opportunity for the church to have these powerful counter-cultural catechetical tools mm-hmm. because our lives are dominated by screens mm. and by learning experiences that spoon feed everyone with an icon you've got to really think about okay what's going on why is the background like this and why is this object here and their relation to one another and I think they really can be a powerful teaching tool preaching tool and object of reflection uh, to reflect on what God has done in Christ and through his church
0: the shorthand for how we experience an icon is we don't we don't use the word look at or some other kind of verb we use read
2: read you write and
0: read yeah
1: Yeah. all right sermon first pass
0: all right let's take a look as always uh, we seek to um, enjoy the scripture lessons as much we can before uh, we record but we do take uh, responsibility uh, for our our own preparation for our sermons as they come up on sundays And uh, we're very overjoyed to have such a great preacher among us uh, in Canon Holcomb. And so we are going to be taking a look at the texts, Father Matt. Uh,
1: Yes, this is again for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost. These readings will come up on September 22nd or in track two. So our Old Testament lesson will be Amos chapter eight, verses four through seven. And then our Psalm is Psalm 113. Our epistle is First Timothy two, one through seven, and our gospel—very easy gospel to preach from, not complicated <laughs> at all. Luke chapter sixteen, verses one through thirteen. Guys, what do you got? Have we thought about our sermon too. <laughs> well,
2: we got—we got a ways to go. We're a, still a ways. Away. Yeah. I don't have much for um, Amos in the Psalm just because looking at First Timothy and Luke, those just have my attention. But what's what's neat, if you look at the collect, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly, mm. to hold fast that which shall endure. And Amos, hear this, you trample, you that trample on the needy and bring to ruin the poor of the land. I mean, it it, it actually is a picture of things, serious things to be anxious about that are earthly. But it is, so Amos is a good picture. It kind of connects to the collect. So that's worth paying attention to, I think.
0: There's always a contrast, I think, in the prophetic books, right? So what is what is happening on the ground versus what is God's great desire for his people? And so, you know, if, if we're supposed to be uh, having our minds on things heavenly, well, Amos is really speaking to the fact that, well, I see around you that there are people who are not looking after who they ought to be taken care of, yeah. uh, who are the people who are close to God's heart. Uh, and in fact, there's people who are way more worried about making the ifa and the shekel and... and and practicing deceit and false balances, bringing ruin to the land and to the poor. And basically, Amos is saying, like, yeah, keep doing that. Keep doing that. See what happens. Well, this actually is, this Amos fits really nicely with the Luke passage about
2: Mm -hmm. the dishonest. And we'll get to that. So I think what you just said, we should let that hang there until we get to Luke, because it actually could be an illustration. Mm -hmm. You could use Amos as the illustration if you're preaching Luke or the other way around. But it, it ties into it.
0: The psalm is um, one of the great doxological psalms where we just begin with Hallelujah, give praise you servants of the Lord Praise the name of the Lord One of these psalms that is so uplifting in the life of the church Not one that, uh, that, that you know, there's other psalms that are penitential in their in their orientation But this one shows us what God is really like What What does he do? Who is like the Lord our God? Who sits enthroned on high? But he stoops to behold the heavens and the earth this is the God who takes up the weak out of the dust and lifts up the poor from the ashes, just uh, in uh, rate right and direct contrast to the people that uh, Amos is trying to get after. God sets them up with the princes. He makes uh, with the princes of his people, and He makes the woman of a childless house to be a joyful mother of children. This is the God that we serve, uh, the one who takes those who are at the bottom and puts them at the top because He seeks to bring us all closer to him, as Father Matt said in union. With him in Christ.
2: I love this psalm with our collect again. Yeah. Because if you just have the collect and the collect feels like I mean, there's one way for this collect to come off. The collect can sound like, hey, stop being anxious and start <laughs> focusing on heavenly things. <laughs> yeah. What do you, yeah. what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. Versus <laughs> like a compassionate, like, hey, don't be anxious about earthly things. Yeah. But set your mind on heavenly things and hold fast to the hope. Well, why? Well, because God's like Psalm 113 says. Right. The the answer to that collet is Psalm one thirteen. Yeah. You 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 will love things heavenly and hold fast to those which shall endure, and not be anxious because of what God, who God is and what He does.
3: Yeah. So,
2: but yeah, you're going. Yeah, unfortunately, I know. Yeah. Not I'm waiting a, for you to say it. <laughs> most people can read that collet. Like how obnoxious is it when you're <laughs> actually wrapped around the axle and someone says, "Hey, don't worry about it." And then fill in some sentimental platitudes right. like, time heals all wounds, or, like, like God's all got that does is just piss you off more, and it, it makes does. me more anxious and more wrapped around right. the axle. What I need to know is, like, don't tell me, don't give me good advice on how to be less anxious. Tell me what God has done. Do you right. have good news for me or not? Yes. Like, going back to your excitement about the gospel when you were yelling about, like, <laughs> like, like is, is are you giving me good advice on I should sleep more and I should exercise a little bit and make sure you eat healthy so I'm not anxious? Or yeah. is God mighty, powerful, and loving, and he actually cares about his children?
0: Yeah, I'll, uh, so uh, I'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be vulnerable here for a minute, but I have actually come to Canon Holcomb in times of, of, of anxiety. And instead of giving me the, hey, go, go come with me to Orange Theory, and you know, maybe a drink, stop drinking that cup of coffee late in the afternoon. It's like, have you ever heard about this Jesus Christ character, <laughs> and what he's done for you? He loves you. He man. loves you. Yeah, and that's that is the nature, I think, of of good pastoral care. So thank you, Canon Holcomb. I'm honored, man. I love you, brother. All right. So getting into the
1: epistle, and you saw this thread of you know being focused on things heavenly. You know, we we're, we're praying for. Uh, He's talking about praying for kings and those who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. There's a little bit of just let's pray for them. Maybe they'll leave us alone so that we can focus <laughs> yeah, so we on. Can what we're supposed to be doing yeah. our Lord and Savior, <laughs> the true King of Kings, Jesus yeah. Christ.
2: There's a little bit of that. Yeah. a little yeah. bit of two kingdoms. Like, hey, let them do what they're going to do, so we can do what our King wants us to do in yeah. a cool way, not like a separated world. Yeah,
1: yeah, not in like yeah, what we do here doesn't matter at all.
0: And it is, it is so practical, right? Because you know, when we do think about um, the the idea of having heaven breaking into our own uh, our own reality. Uh, becoming heaven again, right? So that there's a new heaven and earth. There is always going to be this conflict in, in humankind between uh, the forces of, of, of authority, things like people like kings and people who are in high positions. And here's, you know, short but still practical advice is well, what do we do with these folks? And Paul says here in other places, well, pray.
2: One option on this one is this thread. So hopefully this is useful. It says uh, supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. What Paul's doing is saying, he's not just saying four different words for pray. He's talking mm-hmm. about all the different types of prayers. Mm-hmm. At least four different types, but there's more. Mm-hmm. But there's all types of prayer. For who? All types of people. The, the, for everyone. For, made for everyone and the king. So kings are an example of the everyone. So you have all types of prayers for all types of people. Because God desires all to be saved, and it's all the work of God. So you can actually do a whole sermon on the word "all," and you have four points, and you can just you're basically just reading that. But He's the ransom for all. So you know, all prayers, all people. So God desires all to be saved, and then it's all God's work. It's, there's one God, one mediator, Jesus Christ Himself, who gave Himself a ransom for all. That'll preach,
1: and that's that wide net to go back to. The feast of saint matthew drink this all of you yeah, yeah, Ooh, yeah because nice. because unless you eat <laughs> nice my blood. flesh and drink my blood you have no life in you and you exist so that my life can be in you and you and me that yeah. i'll preach i must going steal that so there's a eucharistic always like in a sermon if possible to have that eucharistic dimension yeah. to the sermon
2: well and if you preached on first timothy if that was your anchor text then making that point we made earlier about Matthew in the Eucharistic prayer, because it's in every single one. You can't get away from it on any Eucharistic prayer. That would be a nice thread to pull out and point people to. So this all from First Timothy passage is, we're going to see that in a few more minutes. Yeah. Drink this all with you. So that'd be nice. Well, what in the world is going on in the parable <laughs> of the shrewd manager,
1: as it's called? If you didn't pick up on it, I was being facetious when I said it was an easy gospel passage to preach on.
0: Yeah, uh, Canon Holcomb mentioned before we record that you know you almost have to address this text as a preacher in the pulpit because it is it is uh, it is just that. Um, well, what, what's a word that we? Can or if you use? have a large
1: name, just mute the deacon's mic. And <laughs> just kind of. Just get it. It's such a, it's a text that
0: causes uh, <laughs> such such uh, confusion for for the faithful. And yet we're sitting here, kind of um, anchoring ourselves on, on Amos, the Psalm, and the Epistle, because they're they're basically preaching candy. But here we are with preaching medicine, perhaps uh, one of the uh, one that will bring us challenge, so that we can bring something life giving to our people. And I don't know where to start. Where do we start? Well, we, before we look at the text, um, <laughs> personally,
2: I'd either tie the collet to Amos and the Psalm, sure, and kind of that could be one homily. Or I'd do something on First Timothy and let that be his own. I'm sure there's, there's tons of different ways you can weave these together. Yeah, absolutely. And depending on the Christian education going on at the church where I'd serve, I might punt on this to actually go through it and give it its due diligence carefully. Mm. And so we don't have to preach on it. I was just saying that because it's like every once in a while when I go preach somewhere and they go, hey, we want you to preach on the supremacy of Christ and it's Colossians 1 was the epistle reading but then the reading from the gospel was on divorce right? and I've been there where I'm guest, I'm preaching, I'm celebrating and they, the deacon reads the gospel passage about if you got divorced and there's people just crying yeah, because it, it, they need the passage unpacked so I finally saw People crying and thought, I'm not preaching on the passage, but let me just explain what Jesus is saying and not saying here. Yeah. Okay, now supremacy of Christ. So this is one of those passages. Right. Because, but there's a so it's a parable. That's important. So because it's a parable, parables usually have one point that it's trying to make. So you don't want to press the details of the parable too far. Mm-hmm. So that's a big idea. Mm-hmm. And so the main point is that the manager, the dishonest manager of this person's estate had great foresight to anticipate his financial needs after he was dismissed I mean, he, he gets dismissed for being shady and the first thing this guy does is go oh hey Bob you owe the guy 100 whatevers and how about make it 50 right. hey you owe 80 100 bushels make it 80 and so he has this foresight of well how am I going to make money well these people if I give them a deal they'll they'll owe me on a favor so he's actually looking he's being wise and strategic about taking care of himself after he this is his one window of opportunity yeah. to do that so he's being shrewd he's a right. shrewd dishonest manager i think part of what's going on here
1: i mean if you look at it in context and you know luke chapter 15 with the parable of mm-hmm. the lost sheep the lost coin the parable of the lost son and He's rebuking the Pharisees and the scribes. He's rebuking his own. He came to his own and he didn't receive him. And if we look at Jesus's coming as Yahweh's return to Zion, we think of, you know, something like the parable of the talents. Well, that's about the ultimate eschaton, which I'm not saying it's not at all. But that's really Jesus saying Yahweh has returned to Zion and I'm calling you to account. And so that's a little bit of what's going on here is, this manager is being called to account, right? It's D-Day. Right. And this is what's happening to Israel. You guys have not been faithful stewards of the covenant, of being my people. And you should be like this guy. You should be scrambling because it's, mm. it's the day of the Lord is here. Right. And you should be scrambling to try to repent at the last minute and sort of make things right. But you're
2: not even doing that. Right. That's the point to highlight that you're saying is because he, he was peaking, this parable is to his disciples and the Pharisees. Right after this passage, guess who, were, who was ticked off? The Pharisees. So he was doing this to the He was talking about to his disciples and the Pharisees. He had two audiences in mind. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he's, he's equating the dishonest manager to what the Pharisees should be doing. That's how you have to preach this. Yeah, because it, that's, they, what, that's what he's doing. That's that's the purpose of the text. You guys haven't been faithful, right? You've been
1: mm-hmm. for fifteen hundred years, yeah. And if you scrambled, because God is merciful, like it's really actually a call to repentance and to come into the fold. He's like, and you guys still aren't getting it. You're just like, well, I guess
0: I wasn't faithful. And what is well, and it, yeah, and if you've not been faithful with 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 what belongs to another, and I guess we might even say that. What belongs to another is the salvation of God, right? Who will give you what is your own? It is interesting how it ends, therefore, that no slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in wealth. And he says cannot, not like
2: cannot. It's not, it's not possible to. Not right. that you won't, it, you cannot. It is not a possibility for you to serve God and mammon. Now, this is something that's important on this. Knowing the audience is that this is a compare and contrast right. parable, and so in contrast to the manager, the dishonest, shrewd manager, Jesus's disciples should not use their money unrighteously. Going back to loving things of earthly, mm-hmm. you know, loving things earthly, and being anxious. Going back to the colic. So, don't be like them. Jesus is saying, do not be like him in his using money unrighteously, but like the manager. Use your money in such a way that it prepares for your future life. And his whole point is this, the, the, the shrewd managers of this world, this age, show more concern and skill in taking care of their earthly well-being than the sons of the kingdom do in taking care of eternal matters. So he's, he's, he's talking to his disciples and the Pharisees, and that's a compare-contrast moment. So that, that does work. And it shows up nicely because this is when some people are doing stewardship campaigns sure. and that kind of stuff. And so I get why some people would be, like, eager to preach on this. But they're, you have to thread the I name. don't. So you have to thread the Because he
1: said this a little bit earlier. I mean, if you don't give up all your possessions, you yeah. can't be my disciple. Right. So that's still in the background of this gospel. Yes. Yeah. Of, yeah. When it comes to wealth, by the way, you need to lay up for yourselves. Well, and is it an interesting in that
0: between, I mean, because we're, 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 as we record this, we have we have preached that we are we have we're getting ready to preach as we record this the lost sheep the lost coin but just last week so many of us have preached about uh, a hard re- uh, scripture from Luke 14 which ends with Father Matt you just you just said it whoever does not give up all their dis- possessions cannot be my right. disciple um, and so we we kind of get some candy between two hard sayings but if we if we look at it and it's in a, in a, as one set of teachings, we can see that there's a, a great unity that even in the challenge of, of being a disciple, we can trust that God is for us because he is constantly looking for us. And so that when we, it is time to take account of our wealth and deal with it shrewdly, we know from the Psalter and from the prayer and from all of it that this is a God who raises us up. And so not to worry so much. Uh, that will take care of us. Amen. Shall we... Cl- <laughs> that was good. I, oh. <laughs> I didn't know if I was supposed to, like,
2: Well, uh, say the creed now and <laughs> praise the people. Like, I, Well, I well think, thanks
1: again for being with us. This has been awesome. This has been so fun. We yeah, could just, just keep so going.
0: Much. We could. We could make two more podcasts. We no, could we go should.
1: Joe Rogan style to seven <laughs> hours straight. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the second joe rogan reference he's so frustrated with me for bringing that up (laughs) but in any case we want to we want to thank you like father matt said for being with us canon holcomb before we end are there a couple of things uh that you're excited about are there uh, the titles of some books that uh some folks might want to check out
2: it's called the no series so know the creeds and councils that's with a k K, not the no Yeah, no creeds and councils yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Know the creeds and councils and know the heretics there's there's two other books I didn't write them but they're in my series mm-hmm. know how we got our Bibles like just a history of where you have an English Bible in your hand or on your phone how'd you get it from a papyrus and then um, know why you believe kind of a mm-hmm. apologetics like why should you believe but know the creeds and councils and know the heretics and those are the, those are the two that closely relate to what we're talking about today
0: Canon Holcomb is a very effective speaker and pastor and so easily found on Twitter. Twitter, Facebook, and JustinHolcomb.com if there's anything.
2: There's about 12 other books that I've worked through, so all the books are listed there. My specialty, which is a horrible specialty, is abuse. So sexual assault, domestic abuse, and child sexual abuse prevention. So completely not related to what we've been talking about um, directly. Well, good. But good care. and yeah.
1: unfortunately really necessary I, kingdom yeah. work at the moment. Yeah. Indeed.
2: Indeed. So there's there's those resources too. So Justinholcom.com. Holcomb without an E. H-O-L-C-O-M-B <laughs> because our soon to be canon to the ordinary <laughs> is also named Holcomb and he uses an E.
1: And also an incredible man
0: of God Indeed. that we're blessed to have. Yes, we are rich with godly Holcombs. What a dumb thing to say. <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> and as we meet together today, it is the Feast of the Holy Cross, so a happy Holy Cross to you both. And as we pray out, we remember the Feast to Come of St. Matthew the Apostles. Let us pray together. We thank Thee, Heavenly Father for the, the witness, witness of thine Apostle, apostle and Evangelist, evangelist Matthew, Matthew to the, the gospel, gospel of thy Son, our, our Savior. And we, we pray, pray that after, after his, his example, we may with ready wills and hearts obey obey the calling of our Lord to to follow him through Jesus Christ
1: our Lord who liveth and reigneth with thee and the Holy Spirit, Spirit, one God, now now and forever. Amen. Episode four is in the books.
0: Right there, down in there.
1: It's in a literal book right now. I'm writing it down (laughs) with my number two pencil. (laughs) Blessings.
2: Blessings. I'm still here. <laughs>